Hey, 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 good morning. Good morning, everyone. Happy Sunday. And uh, my goodness, welcome to Weightless and Mind, Body, and Spirit. I am your host, Dr. Carol Penn, doubly board certified in family medicine and obesity medicine, as well as your master movement meditation and mindset coach. And I am so excited this morning because we have a very, very special guest with us this morning. My goodness, we already have some people who have joined us. We have our early birds, and I'm going to bring our special guest on. You can see her beautiful face right now. She is smiling. She is lit up. She is glowing because, well, her mama calls her sunshine, and you're going to find out why her mama calls her sunshine in a few moments, in a few moments. So my goodness, we have... Dr. Monique is here, our good friend Victoria is here, our other good friend Linda is here, Dr. Jaquel is here. My goodness, my goodness, my goodness. So we are so excited. And for those of you that are watching, please put your questions in the chat. We do make this interactive and we do make this lively. So this, hey, good morning, Dr. Dietrich, good morning. So you are here, we are live with Weightless in Mind, Body and Spirit. Now let me tell you all what I mean by that. So it's got a double meaning. So many of you know that I, I'm, a, I'm a mindset master, meditation master, movement master. So there is literally that meaning. What does it mean to be weightless? And so many people, patients, clients, good morning, Marianne, are talking about you know, they feel such a burden. They feel such weight. They feel such heaviness. Good morning, Patricia. And they're talking about feeling weighted in their spirit, weighted in their mind. And we often use, it's the same vocabulary for the weight on our body. So that's the, the mindset and the meditation aspect of it. Now, with my being an obesity medicine expert, of course, I'm also talking about literally taking the weight off. So that extra 5, 10, 15, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, over 100 pounds that people want to shed and the interface of that. Because I always say, you know, the, the longest distance between any goal is between here and here. The heaviest weight that we need to lift is between here and here. And I'm talking about between your two ears and what happens in the brain. And there are certain uh, a number of hormones that are very important to understand that happen in the mechanism of the brain. We might not be getting into all of that today, but it is something that I do explore in my medical practice, for example. Good morning, Karen. Karen is here all the way from Pakistan. So we have quite an international audience. Good morning, Dr. Mashika. This is so wonderful. This is so wonderful. So I'm just going to go ahead and share, uh, you know, what, what I titled this. And then I'm going to introduce our fantastic Fantastic, fantastic, fantastic guest today. So this is mental health amidst protest and pandemic. We're going to talk about that very, very important topic this morning. 
All right, so are y'all ready to meet Dr. Erica? I mean, really, are you ready to meet her? Some of you might think you know her, but you might not know all these things about her. So we're gonna get to let her know, we're gonna get, have the opportunity to get to know her in her professional capacity. So let me share with you, Dr. Erica Goodwin, is a Harvard-trained, double-board-certified psychiatrist, as well as a best-selling author, speaker, and integrative lifestyle coach. Her latest book is Fix Your Fairy Tale, A Woman's Guide to a Great Life, Love, and Legacy. She is passionate about improving mental wellness, making people feel loved, cared for, and seen. Dr. Erica works as a traveling psychiatrist and has her own adult telepsychiatry practice. Whoop, whoop. So much needed. Dr. Erica also mentors and volunteers as faculty at Morehouse School of Medicine. Good morning and welcome to the show, Dr. Erica. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm just so excited to be here. Who knew we could be so glamorous this early in the morning? <laughs> Who knew? <laughs> Yes, yes, yes. So, you know, Dr. Erica, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself? And also, there might be some who are watching that don't know about Morehouse School of Medicine and its significance. So if you could enlighten us all and share about that. Sure. So as Dr. Carol said, I'm Dr. Erica. I'm a double board certified and as she added in there, which my best friend always tells me to tell people, Harvard trained psychiatrist, which means I'm a child, adolescent, and adult psychiatrist. Then I do all the stuff she mentioned as far as I have a best-selling book. Well, a couple of them. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a super integrated lifestyle coach. But past that, I'm on a mission to help women feel valued, seen, and whole on their own terms. And I'm fortunate enough to have been able to work across the country as a traveling psychiatrist, which then led me to creating my own practice, which I've been able to do literally on my own terms to practice medicine the way I want to and integrate all of these experiences I've had working from public to private with kids to adults to consults to the military to rehab facilities and kind of combine it all into one. And one of the blessings for me is I started off my high, my, my education after high school at Spelman College. And if you're not aware of Spelman, um, it's one of two historically black women's colleges. And it's part of what's called the Atlanta University Center Consortium, which includes Morehouse College, which is the only historically black male college, Clark Atlanta, did have Morris Brown when Morris Brown was functioning a little bit better. And then, um, Morehouse School of Medicine. Well, actually, Morehouse School of Medicine isn't. It's um, ITC, the Interdenominational Theological Center. And Morehouse School of Medicine sits right over there. And the interesting thing is, even though it shares the same name as Morehouse College, they are not directly affiliated. Um, and Morehouse School of Medicine is one of a handful of historically black medical schools. And those were extremely important historically because there was a time where if you were black, you couldn't actually attend what we would consider a predominantly white medical school. People couldn't go, so we created our own. So it has this extremely rich history. It also has um, a huge center for health disparities. 
I'm really honored to be able to be affiliated. And that's actually where I did my adult psychiatry training. And then I left and did my child training at Harvard. Oh, wonderful. That is so exciting. And, you know, one of the things that's often talked about, just generally speaking, is that there is a tremendous shortage of mental health resources just globally. So my, you know, patients come to me all the time. You refer them to mental health or you refer them to psychiatry. And they say, yeah, well, I got an appointment, but it's not for three months from now, four months from now. So could you give us a, a little bit of a, a snapshot? Why is that? Why is it so difficult for people to get the mental health that they need. So even when they agree to accept the referral and schedule the appointment is often, you know, months and months out. So there are a couple issues that go into one is there just definitely, as you mentioned, there is an absolute shortage of psychiatrists. And there was a time where the conversation really revolved around, we don't have enough child psychiatrists, but the honest goodness truth, there's a shortage in every kind of psychiatrist. There's just not enough of us. And part of it, I think, is because psychiatry is not sexy. You know, you know, you go to med school and when you see things on TV, people see things in the media. The psychiatrist is never sexy. So I think part of it is it doesn't have that allure that makes it desirable just because it's something cool to do. You know, there are some fields that people feel are a little cooler, like ER or ortho or surgery and like but people it's like I always remember the experience when I first said I want to be a psychiatrist it's kind of like you're going to med school for that so I think the first thing is is finding ways to creatively make psychiatry sexy because I do think there are some sexy things about psychiatry but so that it becomes a more desirable field for people to go into because we do have that overall shortage and the next thing is getting help our field is the only one I feel like that it's you almost need a degree to find, figure out how to get in the system because it's not logical. Um, especially even though supposedly there's more parity, which means that for people that aren't aware of parity, it basically is saying that your ability to get mental health care for it to be covered with your insurance for you to access it should be similar to any other medical illness like high blood pressure, diabetes, you broke a bone, that it should be that simple. Because everyone knows what to do, who to go see, if their blood pressure is up or if they have a cold or if, you know, they break a, they break a bone and they fall down, everyone kind of knows where to go. But with us, it's people don't understand what the different kinds of mental health caregivers are to begin with mm -hmm. then to find one and then hoping one to cover it in your insurance. If you want to actually use your insurance, it's just a bit trickier. So it ends up being a situation where a lot of times you're trying to ask whoever you know how to find one because the other thing is Dr. Carol brought up is since there aren't enough of us, a lot of people are full. So they may show up on lists if you search them, but then you start calling the offices and they're not actually taking new patients. Um, so it's, it's a complicated system it, b before you even get to the fact that there's a lot of stigma attached. So people, people may not feel comfortable to begin with, but it, it takes a significant amount of effort a lot of times to get to one of us, unfortunately. And you brought up something also, there's a lot of confusion. So for example, so my beloved said, oh, she's a psychologist, right? And I said, no. <laughs> so could you tell us what are the, you know, the different aspects? So 
what is the difference between a psychiatrist and a psychologist? A lot of people don't know the difference. They think they're interchangeable. So where where are the points of union and where are the points of separation? So, you know, I like to educate on this show as well. Sure. So, so and I'm going to add one thing in there because this confuses everyone. So there are a couple of terms that are thrown around when they talk about mental health. They'll say psychiatrist, psychologist, they'll say therapist. Mm-hmm. And therapist ends up being the biggest catch-all generic term because a therapist can be a psychologist, a therapist can be a social worker, and some psychiatrists do therapy. But most of the time people will call a psychiatrist a psychiatrist. So when you look at therapists, your two main types of primary therapists, that, that's all they do. Um, Because as I said, some psychiatrists actually do do therapy, is that you have social workers and most of them, um, some of them will be licensed clinical social workers. Some of them are, you see MSW for master social worker, master's in social work. They just do therapy. Now you have, um, and depending on what they got certified in, they can get certified in a wide variety of therapy. Your psychologists, they do therapy. They're PhD. So typically most of the time you see a psychologist, even though some of them can be master's level, most of the time you see them practicing, they will be PhD level. So they've had a lot of education, lots of dissertations, and they'll do a multitude of different types of therapy because there are numerous kinds of, of therapy that can be done in talk therapy. Then, But the thing they do that's different than what I do is psychologists do psychological testing. So that and neuropsychological testing. So all those batteries of tests when people are filling stuff out or you'll see the ink blot tests and all that stuff. That's what psychologists do. Social workers don't do it. We don't do it. They do it. That's that's all their lane. Mm-hmm. They do other stuff too, but when you look at what's in their lane and not anybody else's lane, if you need psychological testing, that's their lane. If you need testing on learning, that's their lane. Then my lane is for, so you have a psychologist has a PhD in general most of the time. Mm-hmm. A psychiatrist has an MD or DO. So they're medical doctors. So that's where the line happens where until they started doing these weird laws. Mm-hmm. You know, psychiatrists can prescribe, but psychologists cannot. But I think what gets lost in that is people feel like the only thing psychiatrists do is prescribe medication. Yes. And we do a multitude of things more. There are some of us that do provide psychotherapy. And even within a traditional appointment, someone can do short, shorter termed and shorter length psychological interventions. Um, then as a psychiatrist, since you are trained as a medical doctor, and if you aren't familiar with how medical school works, until really you do your electives in your fourth year, for the most part, all of us actually did the same thing. So you're... In med school, you're a surgeon, you're a psychiatrist, you're OBGYN, you're family doc. All of us pretty much did the same thing except for a couple of months. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So, so a psychiatrist rather than a psychologist is going to have this framework to see things also in expanded medical model. And that basically means that we are specifically and acutely trained to identify if there's something that's going on that looks like mental health but isn't mental health to identify what that is, because sometimes there are things in the body that show symptoms that show out in your emotions, but the primary issue isn't an emotional issue. The primary issue is a physical issue. And we're specifically trained to deal with that and that interface between between the mind and the body. So part of the difference is, is we most likely would be the one to pick up if 
there's something physically going on that's causing your emotional issues. And we do a wide variety of things. And I, I'd like to put a plug in here that no psychiatrist is alike. So there are a lot of ways. Part of what we do is like an art. And I know Dr. Carroll is big into the art of medicine. Yeah. And for a lot of what we do, because the mind is spiritually attached, that you know, people have been doing studies, they do imaging, they do blood work, they looked at neurotransmitters, but the end there's some spiritual concept because part of what makes us human and gives us our mind and how we're formed is our spirit. So I love to think of the fact that what I do is also a medicine of the spirit. Oh, that's a beautiful explanation. And thank you. So you all can see why I'm having Dr. Erica as a guest this morning, because she does marry the spiritual aspect with what we think of as our mind. And, and my mind right now is just going in so many di different directions because there's so many questions that we need to ask. And, you know, people are in the chat right now and they're thanking us you know, for the explanation, because believe it or not, there's a lot of medical professionals that have forgotten the difference and don't know the difference and don't know quite how to refer and when to refer and who to refer to. We do have a question. May I pass this mm -hmm. question on to you? Yes. So do psychiatrists then order certain blood tests to determine if there is a physical or systemic problem? Yes, there are some tests that generally everyone does on everyone and then some that will will be more person specific. So just as a lot of people are aware of the thyroid just wreaks havoc on everybody's mood. So we typically always look at their thyroids. If people are anemic, they can look depressed. So a lot of times we'll do a complete blood count. You'll also look at um, a complete metabolic profile and we'll do that because when people are diabetic, their mood change, if people have electron electrolyte disturbances. So there's some that you're doing blood tests for, like also vitamin B, B12, folate, and all that kind of stuff. The other is, is that we may take a slightly different history so that then you can pick up on cues from the history. And a lot of us, especially that trained, I trained a while ago, I look young. <laughs> is that you're, you're taught that really your most, the most specific tool you have to actually diagnose someone is the history. Um, and part of what a lot of us were taught was to start really going back, refining your history, refining all of the different clues so that you're not totally dependent on all of these extra devices or things. Like there are, there are times, you know, where an MRI is what's needed. But you want to be able to get all the pieces together because it really helps give you a wider view. And for me, it's not it lets me know if there's something else. But also for me to treat you, I need to understand who you are as a person and also what state your body's in. Oh, I love that. And I'm thinking now of Freud, who is considered by some as one of the fathers of what became the science and the medical field of psychiatry, because that's one thing that whenever you see any reference to uh, to Freud or movies, you see him taking that detailed history. It was all about the story and the, and the medical, what we now know is the medical narrative of the person and the importance of that. So I don't know, doctor, you know, Dr. Erica, there's the sexiness, you know. Well, <laughs> but the problem is, is they, 
we get portrayed, it's so rare that we're not, if you look at us on the media, when you see, I'm not talking about like a news correspondent, but if you watch movies or TV shows, they make us all look strange, weird, oftentimes old and white. Mm -hmm. So they, it's like, it, it makes it look like we're all socially awkward. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Or, or people are sexually inappropriate and have horrible boundaries. Cause even the shows that I feel like the psychiatrists look a little bit better on, like even like Chicago med, the guy has the worst boundaries on the planet. Well, actually everyone on that show has horrible boundaries, but it's, it's part of, part of it is, is when they see a psychiatrist, they don't see someone like myself or my friends. They, they think of some weird, quirky, socially awkward, person that's not going to understand anything that's going on with them. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, it's a two edged sword because there's, there's often also the depiction. I remember a few years back, there was a show with a psychiatrist in it. She was the star, but she also had a, a, a psychiatric illness herself. And that was kind of the deep, dark secret. Um, Cause it, you know, it, it wasn't, it wasn't great. It wasn't nice what she had. But of course, that made it interesting, you know, the mind. And when you think of shows like Criminal Minds and the study, you know, with the forensic psychiatry, that's kind of glamorous, but it's also really spooky, really, really, really scary stuff. So there's often, often that that side of it. Um, you know, so, you know, my, for instance, so my mom spent her career as a psychiatric nurse. Wow. She was the first director of nursing as an African-American woman for a large psychiatric hospital, Marlboro State Psychiatric Hospital here in our wonderful state of New Jersey. And she told me as a little girl, she would tell me, don't become a psychiatrist. <laughs> she says, you know, and, and, and it was, and part of it was, she said, a lot of people who were the psychiatrists that were attendings also ended up becoming her patients. And that fine line between sanity and insanity. So there's also that edge. There's a bit of, of, of truth in that. And, and I think it's, unfortunately, there's such a stigma that's been attached to the study of the mind, that's been attached to, Whew, you know, the separation between mind and body. And yet, you know, you, I find that you blend that, you integrate that because guess what? This isn't something that's just attached to psychiatry because guess what? We all going to be a patient at one point or the other, but yet we blow it up and we've stigmatized it in mental health and psychiatry because we don't find it odd that, a psychiatrist or any other medical professional might have high blood pressure or might have diabetes. We don't stigmatize that and we're not punitive about that, whereas that can be punitive when it comes to mental health. And so, um, you know, oh my goodness. So here's a question. Um, we've got a couple of questions here. You know, I'm, I'm telling you, so this is important. I think that we get, we have so much interaction going on. So what percent of patients carry through with treatment? Okay. And, and I, can I circle back to one thing you just said too? Can I put two things together? You sure can. All right. Yeah. <laughs> the expectation that no psychiatrist ever have had a mental health issue is 
is unrealistic because one in four adults have had some mental health issue. Exactly. Um, which means there are a lot of doctors, but the issue is, are you treated and is your, is your stuff together? Right. Um, and I, I think the thing is, is the stigma with psychiatrists is they, people literally are like, are you crazy? You know? Yeah. And I, I think it's a weird dynamic because the honest to goodness truth is a, a lot of adults have had some type of mental health issue. Now the level of impairment may vary, mm-hmm. um, but the, if one in four people have had it, you sit in a room with five people, a couple people have had some issues. Now, whether or not they got treatment is another thing. Um, I'm not sure about the percentage of people that actually follow through with all of their treatment, um, but kind of circling to health disparities. So we talked about the statistic that about one in four adults will have some type of mental health issue. But then when they look at African-Americans, only about one one third of them that need mental health help actually get it. Um, so it's a weird situation where it's people actually having access to the care and then the follow through of the care. It's a, it's almost a dual issue because one of the hugest things in our community, because they even note that a lot of statistics, it's not that things are occurring more in the black community. It's the access to care in general, the access to cultural competent care and appropriate care is what then also sets up more of the disparity than it being that it is it's occurring that much more in black people, mm-hmm. how it's identified and how it's treated. And then, oh, I'm sorry. I started jumping down to the next question. Okay. All right. So, and I want to circle back to that because we are talking today about mental health amidst protests and pandemic. And I like, you know, the, you know, the second half of the show to really drill into that and get down to that. So here's another question. Why do they always say, lay down on the couch and tell me your troubles? I've done therapy and never once did I get to lie on a couch. Oh, well, this one always cracks me up because part of it is, is, and this is one thing that confuses everyone, is the model that they show a lot of times is more closer to psychoanalysis. So it's more common, especially in psychoanalysis, to have the traditional couch. So a lot of the shows you see or the images you see And what you can see with Freud, that was psychoanalysis. So psychoanalysis typically is extremely intensive. It goes on for freaking ever. Um, And it's almost like this free-floating type of psychotherapy where someone lays on the couch and they talk and they talk. And you kind of put it together, but it's more of a process of the talking. So it's just a little, it's done a little bit differently than some of the modalities that are probably people use more often, um, such as cognitive behavioral therapy and personal therapy, even EMDR and some other things. Um, So, and then there's also additional training to become a psychoanalyst. So a traditional psychoanalyst, someone complete a psychiatry residency, and then they do this huge psychoanalytical training and have some significant amount of psychoanalytical hours. So it's just a type of therapy that's just not as common. So you just don't see as many psychoanalysts anymore either. So usually if someone's not doing analysis, they won't have you lay on the couch. They'll have you most likely sit on a couch or sit in a chair. <laughs> a little bit more directed. Because they're not going to have you as much. Psychoanalysis, people go multiple times a week, sometimes even every day. So it would be really interesting one time. I'm going to have to have you back, you know, just to do a show to go through the types of treatment. So you mentioned psycho 
analysis and there's the Freudian approach, there's the Jungian approach. You also mentioned CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy, which is part of an approach that I use in uh, weight loss medicine and weight loss uh, maintenance. So to, just to go through to discern the different types of therapy. So we had another question. I think this is so important. What tools do you use to help you not become affected mentally by helping patients with their problems? Do you ever feel mentally exhausted listening to your patient's problems? So this is from someone who works in healthcare. And I think this is very important. We have a lot of healthcare professionals and experts with us this morning. That that really shows the value when we're in training, we get and pretty much almost everyone in mental health care training gets what we call supervision. And supervision is where you have someone that's senior that talks to you to help process what you've seen or what you've been working with. And to me, the value of supervision is it it's the best time to learn how to manage dealing with people's emotions so that you don't become an emotional sponge. Mm-hmm. And for me personally, I know. I'm tired when I start becoming a sponge. So you start, you develop number one, what your self-awareness cues are. If you're sucking anything in, you also start learning how, how to be empathic, but still separate yourself from it. Because I think sometimes people aren't sure how to be, how to be empathic and be there with someone, but not be there. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And for me, part of what I do is I don't work you around. I have not worked I have not worked an entire every month of a year since probably 2006, Mm -hmm. maybe 2007 at the most. Okay. So part of how I deal with it is I take breaks. So I periodically take breaks. Um, I don't, I only do call for short periods of time. I can go a year or so without doing call. I keep saying I'm not doing call and every once in a while I do call. I just, feel sorry for somebody. I'm like, I'll do it. And then I'm like, no, that's why I don't do it. Um, because part of it for me is having having space to be able to mentally, physically, and emotionally reset. So to me, it's like if I'm working all the time, I can't reset. I don't reset well that way. So I think everyone finds their own way to find that space. Um, but for me, it's I can separate out that I can be empathic with you but it's technically not my problem. It's, it's my my goal is to help you work through it. Mm-hmm. I can't hold it for you. And me holding it for you isn't going to really do you any good anyway. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I'm also going to, I'll drop a resource in, in the, the chat. Um, I'm on faculty with a program called the Center for Mind-Body Medicine. And we work with a model that allows you to facilitate and participate and yet also have some, you know, protective mechanisms so that when, you know, you do show up and you are triggered, how do you disrupt that? How do you disperse that? And that's, you know, Center for Mind, Body, Medicine, lots of free resources on there specifically for the medical professional community. And that website is www.cmbm.org. And I'll drop that in the chat. But we've got two questions that are going to bring us right into our topic today. So one is our community has looked at asking for 
mental health as a weakness. Um, perhaps we could discuss this issue with kids starting in elementary school age. And that's from, oh my goodness, dear, dear, dear sister in Red Bank. We grew up together in this community and her parents were, thank you again, hashtag Black Lives Matter. So much a part of you know, my formative years in early education. And then also here's from uh, Dr. Monique. Do you think that if there were more psychiatrists of color, specifically African-Americans, more black people would seek help? That can be a huge barrier because they often want someone who looks like them. Thank you, Dr. Lakeisha. She's put it in the chat. So go there, lots of free resources, and that will address your question additionally, Dr. Mashika. All right, so let's take it away with those two. My goodness. <laughs> and that's been a huge issue in the Black community as far as they're feeling like mental health is a weakness, um, which is even added to the fact that there's still a significant stigma against mental health in the overall society that is non-people of color. And one of the hard things about it is I think it's it stems from this long history that we have. If you start looking at the history of slavery and Jim Crow, is there's this whole general culture of survival culture. This 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 culture of we do this to survive. And then people have a certain level of resilience and the assumption is is well that that kind of stuff is a luxury problem. That that mental health is it's a luxury problem. That's what white people do. We just get it together. We pray on it. We we get it together. We we've, we've been getting it together for centuries. We've been somehow making it work. We gonna make it work. And I I think it's it's that that culture of we've made it work for so long <laughs> that sets up the expectation that we should need these services. And there are also a lot of systems of mistrust with mental health services in the black community because they are rea that are reality based and things that have gone wrong before. You know, you often hear medical professionals and people in the community talk about the Tuskegee experiment. Well, that's a point where people trusted mental medical professionals, not mental health professionals. Mm -hmm. And they totally did some black people hella wrong. You know, and you also then have situations where people aren't culturally competent and they often part of the issue with black people in treatment is they get misdiagnosed. You get misdiagnosed, you're not going to get treated with what you actually need to get better. And you may also get the wrong medications. You know, it's very well known that people often will misdiagnose black people with schizophrenia. You look at from linking in the prison industrial complex in this starting with the school component is that they label our children that have difficulties as problem children or delinquents and they're getting punitive things instead of the help that they may need if they have a learning issue, a mood issue or something else, which then starts with another cascade. So I, I do think it's there is a significant issue, an education issue that needs to happen in our community and a shift. And it ends up being a total community type of fix because you have to work with also people in the spiritual community so that they support that mental health is actually useful because a lot of people, especially in the black community, I'm giving the longest answer. I appreciate Dr. Carroll for not giving me the Sandman look. Yeah. Which, no, um, we, the long answer is that um, so that we all work together because I really feel like the other thing is spiritual leaders and spiritual places can work. We can all work together to help people get to where they are. But oftentimes, especially historically with the black church is there are, are areas where people feel like 
the church won't accept them or the church says you need to pray it away or they feel like if they seek mental health, they're somehow saying that they don't believe in God or believe that God can save them, mm-hmm. um, even though they may not look for God to save them from a broken lake. So back to the part about children, I do think it's very important to educate children and also help them have better emotional intelligence and feel comfortable talking about their feelings. So you're starting to see a new rash of children's books with black faces that revolve around feelings, dealing with differences, dealing with a wide variety of things. Um, I even helped write a book that dealt with um, the cutest little black boy named Amari that had ADHD. And we actually put a parent guide in it that specifically talked about all the things about ADHD so that people would know what it is, what's the difference in black kids, what's happening, how to advocate for it at home and at school and how to get a quality evaluation. Because the other issue is with kids is everything looks, a lot of it looks the same. So if you're not trained, it's all going to look the same. A depressed kid, an anxious kid, a traumatized kid, a kid that's gifted and a kid with a learning disorder can all be irritable, anxious, fidgety, mad, have look like they have no focus and be all over the place. So you you need someone skilled to do that. So it happens. It's a multifocal approach, but I very much do agree that it starts with starting to shift this culture and how children feel about emotions. Yes. Yes. So, you know, interesting. This is what I write about in my book, Meditation in a Time of Madness. And it's a guidebook for talented tweens, teens, their parents and guardians who need to thrive. You know, and I I wrote it for a time such as this because, you know, Linda's mom was a, a tremendous educator and just all the things you just said and had did so much in this community and beyond to bring in this education at an early age. So it is about you know, cultivating resiliency and also self-regulation. If we start that with our little bitties. So I, you know, I teach meditation. I teach mindset. My youngest guys that I work with are three years old. <laughs> you know, adorable. And it's really adorable. It's like you never taught meditation till you've had it reflected back to you from a three-year-old telling you how to do it. I mean, okay. I want to go. Yes, yes. And it's, you know, it's so important. So, you know, like I want everyone, you know, to get this book to and to sit around open to any page. Let's talk about it from the smallest of age so that they're, they're able to not be fidgety and distracted and they can get through our educational system. Don't get me started there because a lot of things need to change there. But if the child who is the kinesthetic learner, can't sit still, and you don't have a teacher that recognizes that, that child ends up getting punished throughout school, and they have a very different outcome in their educational experience, you know, because I was I was that kid that couldn't sit still, but thank goodness I had the parents that I did that recognized that. So I ended up in dance lessons and became a professional dancer as opposed to the child who always ended up in the principal's office. Mm-hmm. So we've got two questions on this. Good morning, Dr. Kwame. We've got um, two questions on, uh, two more questions in the chat. 
the first one is how do you approach someone with whom you th you think has a mental health issue to seek help? And then number two, what do you suggest for a person who wants to be seen or thinks they should be seen by a psychiatrist, but doesn't want the stigma of being crazy? And you touched upon that with a lot of African-Americans get diagnosed with schizophrenia, which is thought of as crazy, whereas people of, of other ethnicities often get diagnosed um, with, you know, anxiety, general anxiety disorder, again, carrying less of a stigma. And then another question, what options do patients have if they're allergic to every class of antidepressants? Take it away, Dr. Eric. We can be on here for two We're hours. We're going to do the last question first. Uh, <laughs> okay. What options do patients have if they're allergic to every class of antidepressants? Um, and we're going to preface this with, I am not your doctor. Yes, uh, that's right. This is that's just right. an educational discussion. That's right. Um, there, There's a wide variety of tools we use. So, so for me, a lot of times if someone has a lot of intolerances, because what I find when people start having issues with a lot of these, sometimes it's not necessarily all true allergies. Some of it is they just don't tolerate these medications well, um, that they're just particularly sensitive. So they tend to have more side effects is that you're looking at a couple of things. One is one thing. Typically, the first thing you look at is is what I think you have, what you actually have. Um, because there are some issues, especially with bipolar disorder and things like that, that they may actually start having symptoms of mania with antidepressants. So the first thing is, are we treating the right thing? The next thing is, is are there some non-medication interventions that can be used together so that we can avoid medications altogether because you're not tolerating them well? Um, the third thing is, is if it can't be done with non-medication interventions, do we need to do some creative things and one thing that you see often, I feel like psychiatry probably does it the most out of everyone, is using medications off-label. Off-label just means that it's not what the FDA indication is. And for us, the story of how things actually get these indications, it costs a lot of money for people to get each indication. So it's a lot of studies, a lot of money, and a lot of times the pharmaceutical companies actually, they'll get a couple indications and then they just stop because it's, it's not worth the money for them to keep doing it. Um, so there are some medicines that work for things that the medications don't actually get indications for. So then you start looking at, are there things that you can use off-label that can get someone to where they need to be that may not necessarily be an antidepressant? Like one example would be to use cyproheptadine, um, which is really mild, but somehow or another, sometimes it helps serotonin a little bit. So it's just kind of a multi-pronged approach, but especially for patients like that, if it's not a situation where I feel like their acuity or how sick they are is so high that they have to have a pill, then that's when you really go hard to bat looking for what are other things we can do. And this is, this sits in Dr. Carroll's wheelhouse. Also, we all kind of, all of us that think this way do this is then you're starting to look at what are people eating? What are their sleep habits? Are they meditating? Do they exercise? Um, is there some other medication that they're taking that may be perpetuating these moods? Is there something else medical going on that if this is treated, this will help their their mood better? What are some other changes or shifts? Is there anything with how they are, are identifying themselves or their own personal responsibilities or in their own mindset? I feel like I'm doing a Dr. Carroll commercial too. This is probably why we get along. Uh, that can be shifted. That can help 
how they feel because there are kind of a couple of different ways you end up seeing people come in your door. There are people that come in your door. We'll talk about depression quickly that are depressed, but they cannot identify why they're depressed. The narrative typically is I have everything I should want. I have everything I should have everything I ever wanted. I have a great job. I have a great family. I have the cutest kids. I have this great husband. I have all this stuff, but I'm still not happy. Um, and then you had the person that it just seems like the everything fell out from underneath them. For example, like what we're dealing with now, if someone is furloughed, they can't pay their bills, their grandmama's sick or their family somewhere else and they can't get to them and they feel alone and they have real life stressors. Then a lot of times, sometimes there's a, a space to reframe and use cognitive situations and other things to shift their view of things, which helps them feel less dysphoric. I know that was a long answer. That was a wonderful answer, but this is what people are asking for. So, you know, I'm, I'm looking at the time, but I want to make sure that people have an opportunity to get in touch with you because I think you're going to get a lot of questions after this. So this is an opportunity and, and people, I'm going to share this information, but I'm only going to share it if you're going to use it. So, you know, so that's the point of the show. We're not here to diagnose or treat anything. These everything we're doing today is for educational purposes only. However, if you'd like to get in touch with Dr. Erica, there we go. So, Dr. Erica, is is this how you would like to get pe people to reach out to you after the show? Do it today. OK, so and can I have like 10 seconds on Dr. Dietrich's question? Because I think that one was. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. You can, have, you can have 20 or 30 seconds. So uh, the main one was is how do you put someone you think has a mental health issue to seek help? And there are a couple of couple of ways. They actually have some really good commercials right now that it's like the awkward moment using the awkward moment. But some of it is simply telling someone you're concerned about them. But sometimes it's helpful if it's not nebulous, because sometimes we're like, we're worried about you. Well, why? I'm worried. Is to be nebulous, is to be specific. I'm really concerned because I see you doing this, this, and this. You're, you're not sleeping. I realize you're not calling anyone back. I just want to help. And then you can also sometimes get some information. And this is one tool that can be helpful is um, this isn't like a book plug. It's just actually helpful mm -hmm. is I'm a co-author of a book called uh, Mind Matters, a resource guide to psychiatry for black communities. It has a lot of extra stuff in there for black folks, but it can actually be helpful for anybody, even if you're not black. And one of the reasons we did it is it can be a tool because it helps you educate to so you know kind of what's going on. It literally just lays out all of mental health. It's all scientifically proven, but it's in regular people language. It's like if you were sitting up talking with me and Dr. Carol and we're all sipping tea in the kitchen and you can even suggest something like, you may want to look at this or, hey, this is what I'm worried about. You know, does this sound like you? And there are also resources on NAMI.com and other things like that, that sometimes it might be as simple as I'm worried. This is what I'm worried about. Can you look at this? Does this sound like anything you're going through? And then be willing to maybe hold someone's hand, not necessarily physically. We are physical distancing, but like figuratively be there with someone when they go through the process or trying to find someone and maybe help them with that. Um, because sometimes that's a difficult thing. And the last part of her question, you know, one, one way to get away the stigma right now is telepsych. That's not just because I do telepsych. It's who knew you went? Nobody knows you went unless you told them because you didn't even have to go anywhere. 
Yes, and yeah. that is the beauty of modern day technology. I have a, another, actually another African-American woman who does telepsychiatry. And that is, uh, it's a wonderful way. Because again, like you say, it is completely private in, in that sense. Now, a lot, you mentioned NAMI.com. I love that organization. Could you tell some people what NAMI stands for? And then we're going to invite somebody to go ahead and drop that in the chat, because I think a lot of people don't know about NAMI. OK, so NAMI stands for National Alliance mm -hmm. of Mental Illness. And it's a it's an organization that is it's not run by mental health care providers. It's actually run typically by family members, interested people in the community, and also people that have experienced mental health issues. So it's an extremely powerful education, um, educational and support organization that has a lot of supportive tools from education to they'll have support groups. They actually have a very large, extremely educational conference that is virtual. I think it's, I want to think it's the 13th through the 17th. I'm actually doing a talk on it um, and it's free. Um, and they just, are phenomenal when it comes to providing providing really good education, but also connecting people with people that understand what they're going through. And I think the the value of NAMI is it's it's another spin of instead of dealing with your doctor, you get the support of people that are dealing with these mental health issues or even family members. So it's a good place for family members or people that are trying to support people too. And they have everything from handouts to groups to videos that, and they actually do conferences it's very comprehensive and they have local local organizations too oh yeah i love nami it's like a, you you might know i direct a woman's dance company and nami regional conferences have had us come in because movement and expressive movement can be another way in can be adjunctive and complementary for people that are experienced, you know, whatever the mental health issue is. And so I've done done workshops through NAMI and really enjoy my engagement. And you might not know that there was a member of my dance company was a psychiatrist. Oh. Yes. And I mean, that's excellent because the other thing that's great about movement is sometimes people aren't comfortable using their words. It's kind of like little kids and you'll see that they may not be able to talk about their feelings, but they can draw about them or color or we'll use puppets. Yeah. Um, so the great thing about movement is if someone either is not comfortable using their words or their way of expression isn't words, then you have movement. And I realized I never said how to find me. We just keep getting sidetracked. <laughs> uh, Dr. Carol put down there, askdrgoodwin.com is where you can get a free consultation into my telepsychiatry practice. So it right now is exclusively adult. Um, but the great thing is it's me practicing on my own terms. So I get lots of time with people we can do, look to see if there are interventions that can be done that include medicine or don't. Uh, my personal mantra is minimal medication for maximum effect. If I cannot give you pills, I prefer it. Um, but right now I'm just taking patients in, where am I? Georgia and Tennessee, um, soon to be Massachusetts. Um, if you're interested in just contacting me or seeing what I'm doing and aren't in those two states or aren't looking for psychiatric services, you can find me on all social media at Dr. Erica. That's D-O-C-T-O-R-E-R-I-C-K-A. That's literally everywhere. D-O-C-T-O-R-E-R-I-C-K-A. My parents used all the letters. My mama knows I tell people that because she's awesome. 
<laughs> yes, and we love it when mamas can join us. That's a wonderful and beautiful thing to have that, you know, that connection with our parents. All right, we've got some more questions and comments. And I want you, if you could just begin to transition to talking about, again, we have mental health amidst protests and pandemic. So those people that are out there protesting, those people that are experiencing loss, loss of loved one, um, because of the pandemic, we can't gather together in, in funerals. Could you address, maybe address that in two parts? So how do you take care of yourself if you're out there on the front lines, either protesting or dealing with the pandemic? So the part of dealing with both yourself and even you know, I think we all have a love-hate relationship with the word self-care. Um, is is finding a way to reframe what's going on because there's there are all these overarching stressors related to protests, the dehumanization of Black people, and this pandemic all going on simultaneously, um, which sets up this construct that people feel a lot of uncertainty and like their life is out of control which then leads to a lot of additional mental distress on top of whatever anybody was feeling before this, because we all knew that everyone had a life pre-COVID, everyone had a life before the civil unrest has hit this huge point. And part of it is, to me, the key of it is, is how you integrate yourself. How do you relate to all of these things? Because the whole, anyone can tell you, you need to get some sleep, you need to eat healthy, you know, you need to be on a schedule, but part of it is it's the ability to change and be adaptable because that allows you to feel more grounded because I feel like at the end of the day, that uncertainty, people just don't feel grounded anymore. They feel like they're just flailing in the wind. Uh, pardon my dramatic interpretation of flailing. <laughs> <laughs> and And part of it is learning that reminding yourself what you are in control of, that you are in control of your physical space. Most of us are in control of where we live. We're in control of our bodies. We're in control of what we decide to do and not do. And that's a lot of power. And to me, a lot of what helps your mental health in these situations is reminding you that you actually do have power, that you're not powerless or helpless in this situation and then also figuring out giving yourself grace while you figure out what your role is in all of this mm -hmm. from this the standpoint of the dehumanization of, of black people what's your role are are you going to be the person that the way you contribute is protesting are you going to do like dr carol and and come up with some some course that helps affect people's mindset and their ability to take action are you going to be advocating? Are you going to speak up in spaces where people typically don't speak up? What are what's your role? And I think it's it's figuring out what you want to do and what you're going to do to take action. And a lot of this is around taking action. It's you have to take action to take care of yourself. You have to take action to take care of your family. You got to take action to pay your bills. And and sometimes that's having the the wherewithal to keep dealing with PPP or EIDL applications or to sit on the phone on hold forever while you work out your unemployment or creatively looking for how you can 
find some income or ask for help, but that's active. Even asking for help is active. And I feel like the other thing is between realizing you actually do have power and asking for help, even if it's just, I need to talk to someone or I'm not okay. People don't know if you're not okay if you say you're fine. If you say you're fine, people are going to act like you're fine. If they walk on, keep on going. <laughs> but you never said you needed anything. So people don't know how or to, to, to support you. So I think if you can, if you ask for help and you take your power back, and if you feel like things are overwhelmed, you get more help because there are times where there are a lot of these things we can talk to. We can talk to you about meditating. We can talk to you about deep breathing. We can talk to you about, you know, Dr. Monique was on last week and we, we can talk to you about how to make every single healthy meal, including her, her tofu, her jerk tofu with the balsamic glaze or right. you know, if your hormones are out of whack. You can talk to Dr. Lakeisha. But the thing is, if you don't actually get the help you need, and especially if it's a situation where you need therapy or you need just a little extra support, if you don't get it, well, you're struggling. And there's no reason. I, the thing I the thing that I'm probably most passionate about is people struggling in silence, people struggling that don't have to struggle. Your quality of life is janky and it doesn't have to be. But it's janky because you aren't comfortable yet or may not recognize that you need to get some help. And sometimes help off the Internet is not the amount of help you need. I know Dr. Carroll also sees it's not in our mindset stuff, but also working with obesity medicine. There's a million years of stuff about weight loss on the Internet. That doesn't mean you're going to lose weight. Right. right. You know, sometimes you need someone to help you facilitate what's going to be a plan. What's the interventions that work best for you? So there are times where you need professional help. And I think right now, this is a time where if you need to get professional help, a lot of it's probably even more accessible because so much stuff is virtual and people are also starting to give away a lot of stuff for free. Mm -hmm. that, get the help. There's no reason to struggle. We None of this stuff is going anywhere. America's not going to automatically become non-racist tomorrow. COVID isn't going anywhere. It's all going to be here. You might as well get what you need because if you're sitting here just waiting for all this stuff to magically be over, you're going to be disappointed. Yeah. You're disappointed, frustration, frustrated, dysphoric. You'll probably gain a bunch of weight because your cortisol is going to go up. You're going to stress eat. You're going to comfort eat and you're going to sit on your butt. Uh, yes, yes. Teach Dr. Erica. Dr. Erica, we're getting so much interaction here. A couple of things. Some of my super friends have joined us and I'm going to give them a shout out. We have Dr. Kathy Farrar on here. Dr. Kathy and I are actually going to be, we're going to come back right here in one hour. So everybody go get your cup of coffee and we're going to be talking about the course, Unpacking Racism Through the Lens of Mind, Body, Spirit, meditation and movement. So the course is launching Tuesday. You'll be an opportunity. If you want to find your way in, come back right back here at, at 9 a.m. Uh, Eastern time. It'll be 8 central time. Uh, also, Dr. Sunul Coriolis, super cardiologist, super cardiologist. Another one of my super friends, he is going to be a guest on this show. So and he was saying in the chat about how he always includes the mental health aspect. 
when he is talking about, you know, that that where it intersects with cardiology. So another one who takes this, you know, 360 approach. So, you know, my super friends all, you know, they know how to take that 360 approach, not separate it. So, you know, Dr. Kathy Farrar, she's the guest co-facilitator on unpacking racism. Very important conversation. I want all of you to jump in, whether you could come two times or eight times, please participate in that. The free resources. Dr. Erica has a Facebook live show. You can jump on, you can friend her, find her, follow her through the social media. Every morning at 6.45 a.m., I do a guided meditation again on Facebook. You know, the early bird catches the worm. How you set your mindset impacts how everything else follows the rest of the day. Woo, and so we're gonna um, finish out with this. It's the eight o'clock hour. Victoria is saying, people think allowing yourself to be vulnerable is a sign of weakness. I believe you have to reach deep, bear, and bear your soul to revamp, renew, and restore. I think that's a beautiful note to wrap up on today. Such words of wisdom, such brilliance in the community that is watching today. Yes, drop it in the chat. Hashtag meditation nation, all one word. Yes, I see Linda every morning at, at 6.45 and then Dr. Lakeisha is sharing your Facebook page. We can do this. We can come together as a community. We can achieve even higher levels of mental health and wellness, even amidst the protests and the pandemic. I want everyone to take advantage of the free resources, take advantage of the reasonably priced resources. And you all are going to do what today? What are you going to do? What is that action that you're going to take? You are going to seek a free consultation with Dr. Erica. And if she can't help you, she can point you in the direction that you need to go in. So listen, it is time to sign off. I want to thank our very special guest today, but not before I ask her, will you promise to come back? Anything for you, Dr. Carol. All right, anything for you, Dr. Erica. Listen, I love all you all. Thank you so much for joining us. Be sure to watch the replay and I'll see some of you back in about one hour. Signing off, Dr. Carol Penn, your host, Weightless in Mind, Body, and Spirit. Bye.